You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. There are times, and there have been times even in the last week, where I lament the apparent breakdown of political speech in our country. It seems like there was a time, not long ago, when political debates involved a substantive discussion of the issues at hand, when politicians, no matter how much they disagreed on policy, were at least engaged in a common effort to find the best outcome for our country, when people truly engaged with ideas instead of hunting for a soundbite that they could weaponize against their opponent. And then I opened up my Bible, and I realized that if such a time ever existed, outside of my nostalgia-tinged memory, It must have been an exceptional period in history. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus was dealing with attempts to get him to take a stance on an issue so that his opponents could use it against him in a soundbite. They were searching for that him to say something that they could either label him as an insurrectionist or some sort of Roman sympathizer. Because the issue at hand was the poll tax. This was a tax that was required of every person in Roman-occupied Judea. The tax was hated by the Jewish people. They had to pay Rome for the dubious privilege of keeping an occupying army in their land. Um, And it was based on headcount, not by property ownership or by profit or anything like that, which gave it the impression of being communicating to the Jewish people that they were owned by Rome. There was a sense where we're paying for the very privilege of existing in our own land. In fact, in AD 6, so when Jesus was probably about 10 years old, there was a rebellion led by a man named Judas, uh, who was from Galilee, and it was in response to the tax. Basically, he claimed that the Jewish people had God alone as their lord and ruler, and therefore they shouldn't be paying this tax to Rome. And so he led a rebellion against Rome, which ended, predictably, poorly for Judas and his followers. Um, in fact, he's mentioned in our Bible um, when the, some of the chief priests are talking about maybe this Jesus thing will die out. They mentioned Judas, and his was a messianic movement that went nowhere because it was crushed by Rome. The people weren't in open rebellion about the tax during the years of Jesus' ministry, but sentiment against it was still very strong. So when the Pharisees and Herodians asked Jesus to make a ruling on the tax, Is it lawful for us to pay the tax? They were laying a trap. Of course, they're not questioning Roman law. Roman law was very clear. You owed the tax. They're questioning, does this match up with uh, with our Torah, with what our scripture says? Is it right for us to pay the tax according to Torah? And um, if he answers and says, no, you shouldn't pay the poll tax, then there's another man from Galilee coming around telling people not to pay the tax and he appears to be leading an insurrection against Rome, which is not going to end well um, for for Jesus and his followers. But if he says, yes, you should pay the poll tax, if he makes that definitive statement there, then he risks losing popularity with the people who still hated it, who still felt it as a sign of the oppression of Rome upon them. And of course, if he just avoids the question altogether, if he tries to give a complete non-answer, that brings shame upon himself and damages his reputation as, they said, who was one who was true and taught the way of God truthfully, 
who did not care about anyone's opinion, who was not swayed by appearances. They set out to flatter him beforehand, but they also spoke the truth. Jesus was true and speaks truthfully. And he's not swayed by appearances. And yet they're trying to trap him, where no matter what answer he gives, it's going to be a bad answer. I felt this even this week in our current politics. I happened to tune in to NPR during part of the um, Senate confirmation hearing of Judge Barrett. Um, and you could tell that the people who were um, against her nomination were kind of trying to lead her into making a statement that would get her in trouble. Um, and she was very much trying not to answer anything at all, because if she makes a statement on something, then it has to rule on it as a judge. She'd have to recuse herself. And even that made headlines of, Judge Barrett won't say she's against this, or won't say that she's for that. Um, and it's, it's a trying to lay this trap, where if you say anything at all, you're in trouble. And you see it in the debates, in our political debates as well, where whenever the opponent addresses the other person, they, they try to ask a question that no matter the answer, they can spin it into some sort of negative view of what they're, what they're saying and what they're going to answer. So this was like that. It was a clever trap, not an attempt to engage in honest discussion. It was trying to get Jesus to say something that's going to get him in trouble, that is going to reduce his status among the people or in the, with the Romans, so that they can raise their own status. It doesn't take supernatural wisdom to recognize their attempt to place them on the horns of a dilemma. Verse 18, though, makes Jesus' knowledge of their trap explicit. It says that as they came to ask this question, Jesus was aware of their malice. He knew that they were not entering into this because they really wanted to know the answer. They're entering into this in an attempt to trap him. So, how does Jesus answer? And I, I think it's, it's interesting here how he does navigate this. Because he, he doesn't take the, the way that probably most of our politicians happen today, where you just ignore the question and answer the one that you wish they'd asked, or you just give it a complete non-answer, but one that can you try to make it so that it sounds as good as it can. Um, if we look at it as that, if you look at his answer as just an attempt to not get trapped, like some sort of folk hero who outwits his opponents so that he can come out on top, then we're missing what's going on with Jesus. Because what he, Jesus does, and what he does all the time, again and again, when these questions come to him, is he does answer the question, but he answers it in a way that gets to the heart of the matter. They ask a question on the surface level to try to trap him, and Jesus turns and looks deeper to what's going on underneath and says, there's something more here for anyone who will listen. So in order to open up and to answer that question, he asks them to bring him a denarius. The currency of the day, the common currency, was actually not the Roman currency. They wouldn't have spent that. Um, so even if Jesus, if his followers had a purse of money, they probably weren't carrying Roman money. That wasn't commonly what was used just for the economy. But it was what was required to pay the tax. You had to use a Roman denarius to pay the tax. And so the leaders came up with one. And Jesus asks them to identify the image and the inscription on the coin. said, whose, whose image and inscription is this? And of course, they say that it is... Um, Caesar's. In fact, what the coin would have looked like on one side of the coin would have been a picture of Tiberius Caesar. And with the inscription, a, a, a slightly abbreviated description, but the Latin would basically mean would be Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Augustus. On the other side of the coin would have been probably a picture of a woman who was ostensibly the Roman goddess Pax. 
but it was modeled after Tiberius's mother, Livia. Um, and this inscription on that side would be Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. The coin claimed, basically in its inscription, that Caesar was semi-divine and that he was the rightful high priest of everyone in the Roman Empire. So these coins, um, so every time the Jews were using this coin to pay the tax, there's an element in which they perhaps felt that they were acknowledging the, the validity of these statements as well. That it's a direct challenge to God's rule. And it's that authority issue that really is at the heart of the matter that Jesus speaks to when he actually addresses, addresses their claim. Of course, the, the answer that he gives them as they come and that they walk away marveling at is, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. And we've already said that this isn't just a, a sort of a clever way to escape answering at all. It doesn't mean nothing. Um, I think there's a couple other ways that we could take this statement and, and perhaps misinterpret what Jesus is saying. One way that this has been used by some people to interpret across the ages is basically to say it's a clever way for him to tell them not to pay the tax. Because they're supposed to think back and remember Psalm 24, 1, which says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so, if you think of it that way, everything belongs to God. And so, therefore, don't give anything to Caesar, because it's really all God's. Um, but that's not what's going on here. Um, Jesus pays taxes elsewhere in the scriptures. And that's not the stance that he looks at for, for authority. Um, so the zealots who, who rebelled against Rome, in this case, were thinking of this, this as this question of authority. Is it God's authority or is it, or is it Caesar's authority? And they're thinking of this as two spheres of authority that are kind of side by side, and we're choosing between either this one or this one. Who are we going to honor? Are we going to honor God or are we going to honor Caesar? And Jesus, in his question, in his answer, points to a different way of looking at things. And this is, this is consistent with how he talks about the kingdom of God breaking into the world all the time. Is that these realms are not separate. They're overlapping. They're on top of each other. So when they are called to render unto Caesar that are the things that are Caesar's. That word that is translated render here in our ESV is um, a word that means give back to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's. It's the same word that was used in, a, in the parables just a little bit earlier in Matthew when Jesus talks about um, the debts that are owed and for the unforgiving servants. Or when he talks about the vineyard that is going to be taken away from the unfaithful tenants and given back to the, to the, the vineyard owner. So there's this, this sense of giving back something that you've received. So the, the Herodians and the Pharisees' disciples are walking around and apparently have access to one of these Roman coins. They're engaged in this economy that, that Caesar has set up. They're participating in it, and they've got, a, they've got one of the coins. And Jesus is saying, as you're participating in this, give back to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. This coin came from him, return it to him. But in doing so, it's not a competing sphere of authority, where I'm choosing between God's authority or Caesar's authority. Instead, it is a recognition that Caesar's authority is always, and no matter what, underneath God's authority. Caesar's authority is always, and no matter what, underneath God's authority. And this is an important principle for how we engage government at any time. 
and it's one that is consistent with what the Bible teaches us about the authority of God, is that no matter what, always, our first allegiance is to Jesus as Lord. Our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Always. And when we participate in politics, when we participate in our lives, we're not to be separating out the things that are, I'm, I'm giving some of the secular things to, I'm, I'm handing off to the government, I'm, I'm engaging that in this level, and then I'm going to take these other things that are sacred and just give them to God. Because when Jesus says to render unto God the things that are God's, he elsewhere talks about the greatest commandment and, and points back to the law where it says that the greatest command of, to the Jews is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. We're to hold back nothing from God. But we're also still, we're still participating in these things that are the, the day-to-day temporal engagement with politics, with Caesar, with, with all of life. And the two are not competing spheres. God's rule is here. God's rule is now. Even when other rulers seem to defy him. That doesn't mean that everything that the other rulers do is good. The Jewish history was pointed, was, when they look back at their history, they had all sorts of examples to look at, look at of rulers that God put over their people and used for their good even though the things that they did were not good. The primary story of their identity was the Exodus, where they were slaves in Egypt. And yet God allowed that. And God used it for good as a formative story in their life. They had the stories of exile, of being removed from their land. And even within their own kingdom, they had stories of unfaithful kings of God warning them, if you bring up kings, they're going to take taxes from you. They're going to take your sons and your daughters. And this is going to be part of what it's like to live under this government. And yet still, God allowed this. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, including Caesar. He too is underneath God's authority. He too is part of the rule of the kingdom of God. And that changes what's going on with the Pharisees. They're trying to, to somehow use this law to try to set a Torah against what's going on in, in Rome. They're, they're trying to set them in opposition to one another, and they're, but they're not doing it. Jesus calls them hypocrites when they come to do this. They're not doing it really because there's this sincere question of, is this faithful? They're doing this, it, it feels like, the, to manipulate the people, to manipulate the issue so that they can bring up and, and get honor for themselves And they're looking even here, they're coming to, ironically, the one who represents God's full authority on earth to ask this question of authority and not submitting themselves to God's authority on earth. They are not listening to Jesus as the one who is Lord. They are not recognizing the one whom God said, this is my beloved son of whom I am well pleased. Instead, they are trying to subvert God's authority all while claiming to do it in the name of God's authority. And this happens to us all the time. It happens to me all the time, where I try to use some law or rule. I try, to, I try to follow perhaps the letter of the law and use it to get out and manipulate from doing something that I want to do. I try to let myself off the hook because something that Jesus said doesn't really seem practical or like a good idea. Giving freely to others, well, what if I have nothing? That's not the way it works. We submit ourselves to God's authority. We walk in the way of the kingdom. 
We recognize Jesus as Lord over everything. We hold nothing back, even as we engage with the things of the world. Challenging to live this out. What I want from Jesus in a time like this is like a nice, simple maxim that I can distill this all down to, that lets me know exactly what I'm supposed to do, that I can apply it to to every situation. I I think the temptation, even with the Gospels, is um, sometimes Paul gives some straightforward answers like that, so it's it's tempting to kind of look at this in the sense of try to get it to, to mean Romans 13, where Paul says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And of course, this is also scripture. This is also words that we sit under. But here in this moment, Jesus doesn't give us something quite so clean and quite so neat. And I think that's actually important for us to sit with these moments where Jesus gives us a direction that's not quite so clean. It's not quite so neat and to recognize that it forces us to trust God with radical dependence rather than having sort of a simple rule that I can follow where if I do this, I'm faithful, and I do this, I'm not. We submit ourselves to the authority of God, and we look to obey him in all things, and we don't do it looking for our own benefit to come out of it. We do it because he is Lord, because he is the ruler over all things. And we recognize as well that there are times, not in this moment around this issue that Jesus was addressing, but there are times where Caesar does try to usurp the rightful place of God as Lord. I mean, we see that even in the inscription that was on the coin, is that they're supposed to pay the tax to Caesar. They're not supposed to give Caesar the worship that he claims is his due. They're not supposed to to recognize Caesar as high priest. Caesar always tries to claim, the Caesars of every age try to claim more than is their due. They try to grab more than what, more honor than they are due. And there are times where we have to stand up and oppose that as well. Whereas Christians, we can't submit ourselves to what the government asks us to do if it is in opposition to what scripture lays out for us. There are persecuted Christians around the world who have to to give to God what is, what is God's. The worship and honor and glory that he is due, even when it's costly. I think of, in, in scripture, I think one of the best examples of this comes from the book of Daniel. And I think of Daniel and the way that he engaged with the leaders of the Babylonian Empire. And he was trusted and risen up to a place of respect. And he was, was given a, a place of authority and yet, when it came time to, um, to when he was supposed to worship the king and pray only to the king, he gave up everything and was thrown into the lion's den. Or of a similar story with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego when they were cast into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down and worship to an idol. They gave their lives for the service of an unholy empire. And yet, at the same time, when it came time to say no, when it came time to stand against what they were being asked to do, they did not just acquiesce. Because the, the, the principle here, when we look at these overlapping roles of authority, is not 
now everything that the that the government does is suddenly has the, the same authority that, that God gives us. We're not submitting to, to Caesar in the same way that we are submitting to God. We are giving God everything. And we are recognizing the rightful place of authority and leadership that God places governments in above us. So this is a challenge, as I said, to, to live out. And there's not an easy answer. In fact, this is another thing that to take away from this passage is looking at this. They want to get a quick, easy here, either this or this. What's the, what's the right way? And still, in engaging with, with the world, engaging with politics, people will still try to get you to make the, the choice where they're going to give you the dilemma and say, choose one or choose the other. You can either go this way or that way. You're either for us or against us. And that's all over right now in our politics, where people are trying to say there is no other way. There is another way. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Our hope is in him. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in him. Our rule, our faith, our trust is in him, even when things don't look like they're going how we want them to in, our, in the political realm. And that's what the zealots couldn't see. They, they thought that to bring the kingdom of God in, they had to throw out the kingdom of Caesar. What they didn't see was the way that God was breaking into the world right then and right there. The kingdom of God was among them. The kingdom of God was present. The authority of God was speaking in the word. And he's still speaking in the word. We have ears to listen. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Give that love and that allegiance to him alone. Don't get caught on the horns of a false dilemma. Walk in the way of Jesus. Seek for truth. Let every moment be holy and given to God. Not some separation between moments that are for him and moments that are for, for other things. And as we do that, as we seek to follow faithfully in him, as we seek as a community to seek after his face, to understand what it is that he is calling us to, we'll find that the kingdom of heaven is here. It demands the highest tax. Everything. Your whole life. We give it all to him. But we receive everything and more back. And that's our hope what it looks like to follow faithfully after Jesus as a kingdom people. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.